This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorn and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorn. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week again is my colleague and returning guest of the pod, Dr. Stephen Phipps. Dr. Phipps is the Chief Innovation Officer at Thorne. He has an ND in naturopathic medicine and a PhD in pharmaceutical science. So he's got a great background in the area that we're going to talk about. So Stephen, how are you doing? Doing great, Bob. As always, I enjoy being able to come talk with you. I'm excited about this topic that we're about to jump into. So yeah, I mean, thank you for having me. Great. My pleasure. So let's get into the main topic, which is metabolism. Very interesting word. And the critical considerations when it comes to dietary supplements and how they influence metabolism. We're going to be delving into how our body's metabolism works, what that means exactly, the factors that influence it, including the new category of weight loss drugs, which seems to be all over the news these days. And then we're going to contrast that to some of the common concerns that arise when supplements are introduced into the equation. Stephen, take it away. Tell us what metabolism means and what influences it. So yeah, so if we're looking at it from the aspect of the human body as far as what people are thinking about and not necessarily what our liver does, really what we're trying to focus on with that is the way that our body takes in energy from food, extracts some of that out, and then translates it into how it runs all the numerous cellular processes that it can. And then, you know, what I think where people really get into this is then what makes it work less efficiently. And when that happens, what do we see, right? And so that's where I think the edge of that, you know, metabolism and its considerations on what we look through and individuals worried about is where it comes into weight or cholesterol or when they might hear things like metabolic syndrome. You know, all of that is coming from that real key point of how there might be some disconnections between taking in that food, converting that food's energy and, and running those cellular processes efficiently. And where does metabolism occur in the body? Is it happening everywhere or is it primarily certain organs? Is it just in the body fat or? The way I look at it is like on the cellular level, obviously everywhere, right? And the ones that are going to be, you know, your big areas that people think of as energy hogs are going to be your brain, thankfully, and then your mus- your muscles, as far as like the need for consistent and refined energy. Other areas that will do a lot, but then kind of store it. You mentioned, uh, you know, adipose or fat tissues, and then your liver does a lot to convert some of this stuff, try to understand what the body's doing and signaling it to do, and then shuttling different things around. And then obviously when that goes awry, you'll start to hear things like fatty liver for that very reason, right? So it's true that it's happening all over the body, but also there's specific parts of it that are occurring in specific organs like the liver, the fat tissue, the muscle, the brain, 
all have their own version of metabolism. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And I think, you know, everybody can remember back to the, you know, middle school or elementary school days when we talked about the cell and then there was those organelles. A lot of focus when we talk about it being everywhere is really on uh, the mitochondria, which is, again, that energy powerhouse, you know, for those cells. And then, you know, obviously they're denser in other areas to which we've kind of talked about, right, with it being in the, the muscle in the brain, but definitely they're found in every cell. Then that's a big piece of it. Now, the conventional perspective by nutritionists, et cetera, for a long time has been that it's all about calories in versus calories out. And that's the whole story. But why is it you can have two people on exactly the same diet? One person gains weight. One person has good energy and doesn't gain weight. Maybe you have a third person who's on the same diet and they lose weight. What the heck? Yeah, it's complicated, right? That's kind of where I think we're kind of leading in some of the research and understanding over time. And there's areas then that come into play. And one of them that I think we fully haven't started to understand, but are getting more and more into it is the microbiome, right? So that's one great answer is that those people may have three completely different microbiomes. Well, and what's different about their microbiome? You know, it's hard to say uh, complicated wise, but I mean, in general, one big like bucket area would be that there are key differences in polysaccharide or those complex carbohydrate metabolizing bugs. Some of them will make or eat that up, gobble it up, use it, and then make uh, what's called a short chain fatty acid, which are really important for our GI tract and other bugs that live in the system. But some of them uh, will make more small chain saccharides that are useful for calorie and energy. That all doesn't go into the bugs. That'll go into us too. And so what you can see is that there may be an inordinate amount of calorie freeing within that system that then makes it so that we're seeing, you know, even with the calculations of take your calories minus fiber and you do all this stuff mathematically, not lining up because the fiber is actually being modified and then reinserted back into uh, the human you know, system. So a big part of it, the difference between people is what the bacteria and who knows, maybe what the viruses or fungi in their gut, what those microbes are doing with the food that we're eating. Like, are they converting those foods into chemicals that have an impact on metabolism or do those microbes in some people act much more efficiently? Can they really suck out, you know, the person that says, I ate one roll and I gained five pounds. Like, They've got really efficient bacteria in their gut that can suck out the energy from that food. Right. And then, you know, I think and then there's all those other downstream components. Right. So, um, you know, just in general, dysbiotic uh, guts can lead into the other part, too. Right. Which is, in, you know, low and chronic amounts of inflammation. One of the reasons why I bring that up is if you look at uh, certain types of tissue, there are ways that they all communicate together. There is a messenger system that we you know, refer to as cytokines and chemokines that are typically more considered to be pro-inflammatory, but they generally create the message to fat to get storing or to change its size and shape. So as you increase the inflammation that may be coming from a dysbiotic gut, you may start to communicate over into your adipose tissue and further into that to create some, you know, cross communication that wasn't expected. 
So, of course, the pressing question in all this is, why are there so many overweight people and why is it so hard for a lot of those people to lose weight? And I, I can say that in clinical practice, that, that weight loss is one of the most challenging issues that there is in medicine. And, and I want to add to that question by saying, what's going on with this new category of weight loss drugs that seem to be, quote, I'm putting a quote around this, they seem to be miracle drugs. So maybe that's the first thing I'll ask you. Are these truly miracle drugs or what? I mean, uh, the way I've looked at it, because uh, this is, a, I think, a topic near and dear to me, just because when I was in private practice, I did a lot of weight loss uh, stuff as well, is that there is no miracle. There is no miracle. I have yet to see it. I don't think this is going to be one just in general. And the reason why is that much like any chronic condition where we do see, to me, this being one of them, is that it's multifactorial meaning there's more than one thing going on and we can, you know, focus in on things that will help in the acute scenario or the short term to kind of push on uh, a piece of that, of that puzzle. But as soon as you take it away, you'll typically see what we all, you know, what we would consider to be rebound issues, right? The weight comes back, this comes back, that comes back. To me, that's pointing back to that complex molecular network that is causing some of these things to occur in individuals has yet to be fully resolved. Mm-hmm. It's not solving the problem. No, you know, and that's why, but I think that's also why, uh, because it's so hard and people get frustrated and they're looking for those things that can help. But, you know, whether it's in the short term, the long term, both, because I think, you you know, you mentioned the old thing of calories in and calories out. Like, that's what a lot of people hear when it comes to the metabolism, right? Still. And if it was that easy, and it, you know, and to your point, there may be a small group that 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 still is true, but they don't have all the mac- those multifactorial issues going on, right? There has to be a different way to kind of think about this. And, and I think that when we do think about these things as multifactorial and, you know, more chronic of an issue, then the way that we consider it as far as how we think about helping um, changes, right? Because you can't just have a miracle that way or expect it to work. So speaking of that, that that really begs the question, are there certain dietary supplements that could be, quote, nature's Ozempic? (laughs) You know, I knew that was going to come. You knew Um, it was coming. I do, I do. So, I mean, if you look at just on the surface, right? You look at the molecule of Ozempic, which is the semiglutide. It is a what we would call a you know a GLP one mimetic, or you know, so it is really good at systemically being able to create biochemical changes through that receptor very strongly. If you look at some of the things that we would quote, quote unquote say it may be nature's version, nature doesn't have a lot of things when we look at the natural product space in the general food use or dietary supplement use that are that strong and selective. And I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do with that is at least bridge to, you can modify intestinal GLP-1 with a, with a couple of different things out there, right? I know berberine has gotten to be the, the king of that discussion and that consideration, but I think really when we start to look at that, it's better to be honest with the expectations and also to really gauge into the ways that we can be transparent and safe and and really creating more effective routes to those, to those health modules that we're looking for from it, which does not take away from what berberine can do. 
it's because it's multifactorial, it's actually really interesting, right? I know that you've probably used this in, in practice as well, but if you think about all the things a berberine can do, it also goes into another key area that ties in the metabolism, which is AMPK, right? So that protein kinase can also do wonders at getting energy expenditure back online through those little powerhouses that we talked about, right? So it walks through a very specific path for mitochondrial um, biogenesis and energy expenditure that is quite compelling to use as a safe way to modify one's metabolism. Now, will it cause the same rapid changes into the system that we would expect to see with very selective injectable drug? No, I don't think so. So is it fair to say that drugs tend to be powerful, targeted, focused, and sometimes highly effective in a short term, but maybe problematic in the long run because you wouldn't necessarily want to take them indefinitely. They could be expensive. They could have untoward side effects. And that could be contrasted to an herb like berberine. And, and I've got to say, I have, I have taken berberine myself for at least 15 years. Yeah. And without any downside. And I think that's the, the, the way to look at it. When you're looking at drug development in general, I think what we typically see is you're looking for something that is very selective you know, in the past. And things are always changing because drug development is quite far behind, you know, the research because they have to be to do all the work. So let's go back, you know, we look at that. Right now, the, the main things we see is very selective, meaning it's got one target, very efficacious, meaning it's very small amount to make that change. You know, and that target tends to be one that, uh, you know, is very, I would say, you know, high up in the biochemistry pathway that we're looking. So to your point, with all that in mind, the short-term changes will be stronger because you've kind of really hit it with a hammer. Over time, like, it'll start to really show where those changes can be a problem, right? So whether it's neurological um, in nature or whether it's, you know, potentially psychiatric in nature, the metabolism, quite you know, and, and energetics of our body, again, you got to remember, tied back into very big areas, and one of them are the brain, right? So modifications in that system could over time create some issues and even more longitudinally have more effects that we're just not aware of because we haven't hit that system that hard for that long. So again, that's that last phase of, you know, phase four of the drug development pipeline is to watch it in the field. So you've got, you know, a different cohort when they started using that injectable, it was done in with diabetes, right? And a very specific mind of wanting to do it now spreading it out into a population that's far greater and has other components to it that maybe not have been expected to use it. Like that's where we start to see hitting that hammer could create a bigger problem in a larger population. So what would be your alternative if say somebody uh, came to see you as a patient and said, Hey, I'm a bit overweight. Um, you know, I have persistently high body mass index and let's just say, I want you to prescribe one of those drugs. I want you to prescribe Wegovi or Manjaro. What, what would you say to that person that would represent an alternative approach? So you don't have to go into great detail about every single thing you'd use, but how would you address the issue? So I think that's where I'd kind of go back to the the multifactorial piece, right? And say, okay, you know, like, let's look at this a little bit and say, why don't we start with a few things 
before we consider the hammer. And so those might, you know, the way I would look at that would be, let's go ahead and look at what could be causing problems in your metabolic network, right? So, you know, we may consider looking at um, how, you know, much NAD may be present in the system or how much, you know, uh, which is going to be that kind of currency of energy. You know, we could look at uh, the microbiome and get a sense of, are we seeing some of this stuff? We could look at the inflammatory cascades and, and even do some other components within things like metabolomics, where we can really get a sense of what is your unique chemistry trying to tell me or tell you, and how do we help you understand that, right? And so from there, we could look and focus in on then how to optimize, you know, the meta metabolic process through some of these things like berberine. Some other ones that are interesting are going to be anti-inflammatory, things like uh, Mariva, which is a curcumin phytosome, does show benefit on a very specific type of fat, which is the, we call it, uh, you know, truncal body fat, which typically is more inflammatory in nature. Um, the same thing could be said for, you know, another uh, an ingredient known as uh, bergamot. Um, so those are the things that we would kind of look at how to tailor into redefining and remodifying uh, the metabolic efficiencies, right? So give something that will help with mitochondrial uh, biogenesis, give, give rise to an understanding of what the diet may be uh, looking like with the microbiome in mind, uh, any dysbiotic characteristics, any ways that we'd be seeing abnormal metabolism or inflammation and modify those things and start to really layer that approach in. And then from there too, look at just diet too. I mean, that's a hard part. We all get, we all get busy. We all get stressed. We all have, in, you know, not a lot of time, an infinite amount of things to do. And so stress, stress management, um, diet, dietary style, then also can, can be considered. But I don't think you just start saying, oh, we got to re reduce your calories or oh, we're going to take this off or we're going to do this until you start to see why they're seeing what they're seeing, right? So you're really going in deep is what I'm hearing you say. You, you're you saying, hey, we've got to characterize your metabolism as an individual. And there's a lot of things that we can learn, not just whether your cholesterol's high or whether you have prediabetes, but, but we can really go deep into looking at all the chemicals in your body and looking at your gut microbiome, which it sounds like you might consider doing a gut microbiome test in somebody like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, and especially you can start to then tie that into what might be seen in some of these other blood tests of metabolites and the like. But the way I look at it is you've got an individual that most likely has been dealing with this for some time, right? And is in, in, in with that kind of chronic component, again, you kind of got to understand that there's going to be things that have triggered this in their story, right? And with those triggers, like what may be something that has come out, right? Um, and so you may find that, you know, there's stress-related issues that come through, or there's gut-related issues that come through, or there could be environmental issues that have come through, right? Like, so all these things will kind of give rise to the, you know, and I think also, you know, show the complexity of the human metabolism and the human metabolic process is that there's more than one thing that are that's going on there. And if you're energetic output is going to be kind of dismantled in your mitochondrial, you know, density or how many of those little powerhouses are reduced, 
then your body's not going to be efficient at making energy from your food. So your food's going to go into storage. So your storage is going to be your fat um, because glycogen is very transient. So again, like all these things start to pile on. So you got to kind of unravel it or, you know, like kind of like the, the onion of a problem that it is to really get into how to best kind of maneuver through it. Well, you're giving us a lot of insight here, and I think you're making it very clear that this is not a simple matter of just taking one of these new prescription drugs and bingo, you've solved the problem. So I would just tell listeners who have issues with metabolism to keep that in mind. I mean, make sure you work with somebody who who knows how to take that kind of deep dive, because if, if this is a persistent problem, not just a recent problem, it's going to take some work. Exactly. And, and having somebody there to be, uh, you know, with you along the way, like you said, like a provider that will dive in with you is, I think, a really key area to help. Great. All right. Well, we'll be right back to answer some questions from our listeners after a short break. Hello, this is Dr. Robert Roundtree, your host of the Thorn Podcast. Do you have a health topic you want covered or a question you want answered on the show? Then reach out to us on Instagram and we'll try and cover it in a future episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show through your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to the show enables you to stay up to date on the latest in medical research, follow the next big ideas in health and technology, and get insights from experts on common health concerns. Subscribe today through the podcast app of your choice. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, are there any concerns or considerations about taking certain metabolism-related supplements over an extended period? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really good question. And I think one that's pretty pertinent um, right now is people are looking more and more to things that are helpful here. And I think for the most part, you know, what we've talked about and what we're using have been safe and shown to be safe for the use over an extended period. One of the things, though, that I'll mention within this, however, is there may be, you know, obviously products that wouldn't be, and those are going to be specifically around things that would be known as like a stimulant, right? Or things that are going to increase uh, your heart rate. They're going to increase uh, a lot of different things, but, you know, decrease your overall want to eat. And so, you know, We've seen those, you know, through um, a few different lines that have been popular over time, but Thorne's never utilized those. Thorne doesn't sell them. any of them. Exactly. No, we've never, never been using those. And we won't use those because they are, can be very detrimental to people for sure. So that would be something like Senephrine, I think, is one that yep. is a very yep. popular so, thing. Exactly. It's a stimulant. Basically, it's a it kind of speed. Yep. So kind of working through uh, that fight or flight pathway and turning it way up. So um uh, that's one of them. There's uh, octopines, another one. And then, uh, you know, these are all kind of around that area of trying to really stimulate that 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 fight or flight response yeah. for a long period of time. Whereas things like green tea, you could take, yep. yeah, 
and that's not a problem. I mean, and, you drink that every day and pretty much be a, a pretty healthy person, right? If we looked at the, the data around the blue um, food group, your blue food uh, regions, right, for a longevity, you can look at turmeric, you can look at berberine compounds, you can look at yeah, even some of the flavonoids that are all in there. And they typically, you know, are very, very, very uh, safe and have, you know, like you pointed out earlier in this discussion, things that have you've used for years, right? So, I mean, that's a another really good way of thinking about it. I've heard about this up and coming compound called caffeine. I wonder if you have any comments <laughs> about that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as far as... Uh, Long-term use, safety. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about it, like, you know, if you looked at it in the amount in a tea, an amount in a coffee, um, and it's a one or two glasses a day, I think, you know, you're looking at something a lot different from maybe what people and, you know, have been doing more and more, which is really elevating that caffeine content. Again, yeah, at least point energy drinks. Exactly. Energy drinks, um, uh, you know, pushing the limits of extending caffeine throughout the day into the gram level, depending on how people use it. Like those are the areas that even something that has been prolific in our diet, like caffeine, start to really have a question, right? Why do metabolism supplements vary from person to person? I can think of a number of products that people lose weight with, but then you see in the small print on the label, quote, results not typical. I don't think Thorne says that on any of their labels. So Correct. what do you think Correct. about you know, that? And I think, you know, mainly because we're trying to make sure that we, you know, really get into supporting healthy, you know, meta- metabolism and, and metabolic function, cellular energy. You know, those are the things that, you know, I think the literature shows us. And those are the things that we, we really focus on. And I think the reason why, you know, to even some of the ways we earlier started to discuss this, the metabolism supplements vary from person to person is that, there's a lot going on, right? So if you look at certain botanicals that may be utilized there, um, for is a good point. Like some some people will be really good at getting those into their body, and their microbiome may be doing that with them and for them, and others may not. And so if you're not using something to kind of help the you know body get more of that botanical in, like a phytosome or something of that nature, you're going to see variability there, just because it's inherent. We could say that for a lot of different stuff, actually. But I think that's one just good example. The genetics of an individual for certain vitamins uh, may be another one, right? So if we look at cellular metabolism and folate B12, like depending on how well you can take that and methylate it, you may find that there's issues, right? So looking at tissue-ready forms may help level the playing field, even though some person-to-person variability will still be online. We were joking about caffeine, but I think that the example of caffeine is really a good one because it seems like the population is almost evenly divided between people who don't tolerate caffeine hardly at all and people who do really well on caffeine. The, and the people do really well on it. It actually does improve their metabolism. It's it's beneficial. It's not just that it's a stimulant. It improves their metabolism. Exactly. And I think you pointed out a great one because in there too is the genetics of caffeine, right? So the SIP metabolism point where there's individuals that are that are very sensitive to caffeine actually have some of them will have an increased cardiovascular risk, right? So they're putting their long-term health at risk by trying to push on that because their body's just not made to assimilate that well. So the next person asks, what are the most effective supplements for turbocharging my metabolism? So I guess that would be beyond caffeine. 
And then, you know, when you're talking about that, there's a second part of that question. Can you overdose on metabolism boosters? Right. And I think, you know, the, to answer the uh, the second part first, because I think it's the easiest, um, there, again, goes back to it depends, right? So we look back at those elevated materials that are uh, going to be speed. Yeah. I mean, if you took too many of those uh, at once, you could you you could seriously end up hurting yourself. Yeah. Um, Ephedra is a really good example. Right. I mean, you know, and I think that was that's where you started to get into that class of in question of like something of an abuse potential, right? Like they were abused for their ability to perform, to not worry about food, to not eat, like and uh, you know, and to be lean. So if you push that into the performance realm, that's where you're really starting to push the boundaries even more, right? And so you can definitely get seriously hurt. And weight loss is the same. But for outside that, I do like I like the way that obviously berberine works. I do think that because you have talked about it earlier, that kind of you know, AMPK type of action. So working at really helping increase the efficiencies of energy expenditure for how you're burning energy through your mitochondria is really unique. And you get that little bit of the uh, intestinal kind of GLP boost on top of it. But I think really focusing in on what that mitochondrial aspect is, is even stronger. To me, like that's really a standard. Looking at that whole pathway, right, or that molecular network, with that, then I would bring in nicotinamide riboside as a potential candidate or contender uh, with that, because then it's going to be the downstream kind of reactions that come through once berberine activates that whole area will all be NAD dependent or, you know, and so you'll need that NAD to kind of bolster. And then because as we age and as we lose some of this metabolic efficiency, which is kind of highlighted in, a, in an interesting word called pseudo-hypoxia, we aren't efficient enough at utilizing or, or, or creating our fuel stuff. So that'll really help charge up then two enzymatic kind of components that are all downstream of how berberine work, which will be at your sirtuins, and then a really special little guy called PGC1. And one alpha is kind of what everyone looks at, There's a, um, and that'll kind of pair up with a few other epigenes for metabolism that really help kind of get things moving again as the mitochondria increase their number. So not only is it number that you're increasing with all of this combined together, but the uh, efficiencies of burning that energy. One thing that I might throw in that a lot of people don't think of for metabolism is quercetin. Yeah. That, you know, people think of quercetin is for allergies. Exactly. But there's actually some pretty good studies showing that quercetin can enhance mitochondrial biogenesis, which means enhances the ability to make more mitochondria, which makes you more efficient in your metabolism. So that's one that I would certainly throw in the mix. And Oh, yeah. I love that one. I also wonder what you think about alpha-lipoic acid, which I think a lot of people don't consider. Yeah. No, I think, you know, and those are all, you know, like, I obviously, I love the quercetin. That's a great ad. And, uh, one of the things that's really interesting to your point is that that utilization. Um, and then for alpha lipoic acid, I do also, you know, like that. I do think that people kind of label it as a specific for, you know, supporting healthy neuro function or nerve function, but it's doing it by really making sure that the, some of the energetics and some of the ways that that works stay online. 
So, you know, I do think there's a lot that can be said there, um, especially because the metabolism of fats ultimately is a, a big driver in how this mitochondrial efficiency can work in our favor in that beta oxidation type of response. It really comes down to efficient fat burning, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that essentially the issue? People who efficiently burn fat are able to make more ATP. They have more energy. They are physically more fit and they don't have as much body fat. Right. Yep. And I think, you know, trying to get that energetic balance is where everything kind of goes sideways. But to your point, if that stays online and all of the genetics and all the other factors we talked about, whether it's inflammation or deficiencies in glucose metabolism that leads to more storage of fats, like all those things start to pile up. And like, that's kind of the collapse of that, you know, beta oxidation pillar or that fat burning pillar to your point. And a, and a real key piece of that. So here's a really interesting kind of umbrella question. Are we too concerned with weight and metabolism or are we not concerned enough? You know, and I think it's, <laughs> it's, a, really, it's a really good question um, and, and a really one that we see, you know, as an argument back and forth into, into, you know, the public domain and how we think of this. Like always, there's like, you know, a mix of how we want to think of this. And that's why I really tried to focus in on, are we too concerned with metabolism? And to me, that's the, the big piece of that. The metabol our metabolism, our resting metabolism, if we see it go offline, regardless of we put the weight discussion in and the things that can arise from that topic, we ultimately see issues within our system that leads to chronic you know, decline. So I'm like, I think what we should be looking at or the ways that we should be thinking about this instead are how do we tease that out, right? And say, this is kind of where we think, because as we get into the weight, then ultimately what comes on is the arguments on BMI and whether or not that's something that is accurate and putting us into buckets and how different body shapes or body types may be, like all this different stuff. But ultimately the metabolism and underneath it, that biochemistry pathway is kind of the thing that I think we could talk about because it leads to the things we spoke of, the optimal health, which would be how is your microbiome working? How are these other processes in line? You know, we can see dysbiosis in the framework of a lot of these metabolic disorders and how they come on rise, right? So the newest one being PCOS, which doesn't have to have a weight component for diagnosis, but has a core metabolic deficiency within its, uh, within its constructs, right? So weight is, you're really saying weight is not the problem per se. Weight is a result of a problem, can yeah. be the result yeah. of a problem. Somebody yeah. can be... Yeah. A, a bigger person, a heavier person, and be perfectly healthy. But it's the metabolism we need to know about, which has really been the subject of this whole discussion. And you've given us some examples of how we can take a deep dive into metabolism by looking at the gut microbiome, you know, by looking at biomarkers, probably biological age is part of that. So that's what we really need to be focusing on is does a person have healthy metabolism? Correct. I think that's a great way of putting it up. This has been a fascinating discussion. I, I hope that we've given our listeners some things to think about. Shall I say food for thought? <laughs> so folks, that's all the time we have for this week. Dr. Stephen Phipps, thanks again so much for coming back on the podcast and, and sharing your insights with us. If people want to keep up with what you're doing, uh, latest developments at Thorne, where should they go? 
So, I mean, the biggest ways I like to, you know, track what we got is our website. Uh, you'll see new products being launched, new types of content that discuss these these issues um, as well with the Take 5 Daily. And then things like LinkedIn, where you can find myself and our Thorn Health Tech groups. As always, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.